Ora. I'm Damien Venuto. It's October 30th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. The All Blacks' comeback story has reached its end. The team have missed out on their chance to make history at the Rugby World Cup, falling short by just one point against the Springboks, despite playing with 14 men for much of the game. This marks the record fourth time the Springboks have won the trophy, as well as the end of coach Ian Foster's tenure in charge of the All Blacks. Foster can, however, still hold his head high after defying expectations to reach the final. But with Foster's era now at an end, what next for the All Blacks? And what is the state of the global game after another match dominated by refereeing decisions? Today, Clay Wilson, Newstalk ZB Sports Director, joins us on the front page to recap the final of the 2023 Men's Rugby World Cup. Clay, what did you make of that match? Were you expecting it to be so close at the end there? Well, I think it was a typical final in the sense that it was very close. It was very back and forth, very tense, but also completely untypical in the amount of cards we got. Of course, never seen a red card in a Rugby World Cup final. And today we got three yellows and then a yellow that was upgraded to a red. So that really changed the dynamic of the whole game. And it was really the defining moment when Sam Kane's yellow card got upgraded to red and the All Blacks were forced to play the rest of the match with 14. Now, of course, South Africa had two yellow cards themselves. So it wasn't a one-man advantage for South Africa for the whole rest of the game after Sam Kane got his marching orders. But it did change the whole dynamic of the game. I think in the end, the essence of our final, though, we got, like I say, back and forth, very tense at the end, teams looking for penalties, a lot of kicks at goal, those kinds of things. So in that way, what we expected, but the cards, I suppose you can inspect them in one way in the way the game's played these days, but also very strange for a final. Yeah, officiating was the major talking point after this game. So, I mean, what did you make of it? And how do you go about improving that in the future? Because there are a lot of people who are watching this and complaining about it now. Well, that's the thing to look forward from this, isn't it? Is that the decision itself based on what the laws of the game say and how head contact has been officiated in the past three to four years since World Rugby have really cracked down on it was the right decision. It was a red card, it was a shoulder contact right to the head. But then, you know, people will discuss and we've heard some reaction already about people talking about is the law of the game right? So I guess people will debate that. It probably needs to look at that a bit more thoroughly. But in terms of the processes as they go through, obviously it slows the game down, doesn't it? So we're always fighting this balance of keeping the game flowing, but also getting the right decisions and then also keeping the game safe. So they're never going to get it perfect, but I think some people feel like at the moment the TMOs often getting involved in these kind of things. You'll even notice that in the moment that Sam Kane tackle, Sia Khaleesi actually motioned to the referee straight away. So the players are very aware of this, right? And in this instance, I wouldn't say that the South African player was playing for it. It was a bad hit to the face. But it is a factor now that players are very aware of, of how these things are officiated. As an All Blacks fan, you're trying to be humble, but you're like, man, to have that many yellow cards. I think even the one, was it Colby at the end, who put his hand out, you're like, what is this game becoming? We're still holding them off at the end of the day, playing 14 against 15, even with another yellow card, 13 on 15. It got down to, what was that, 14-14, same numbers, just didn't play as well. All Blacks captain Sam Kane does have the dubious honour of now being the first player in the history of this tournament to be red-carded in a final. How heavy will that hang over him? 
Oh, massively. And especially for someone like Sam Kane, who has gone through a heck of a lot in that role, you know, like Ian Foster for a lot of the time, hasn't had the support probably of quite a lot of Allback fans. Although I think there are people out there that do support Sam Kane and, and have rated him. We saw what he did in that quarterfinal against Ireland. But like I say, he's someone who has been polarizing for people in terms of his ability as a player, his ability as a leader. He's been through some other stuff as well. So yeah, when you pick up an honor like that, it's never one you want to have. And I'm sure that will sit with him, unfortunately, for quite a while. But that's the, I guess that's the price you pay when you're playing at this level and you're playing in a World Cup final. 16 years after the 2007 tournament, our Kiwi is going to be coming for referee Wayne Barnes once again. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure maybe in the heat of the moment, and there have been, you know, you've seen some people reacting already to that. I think perhaps we've moved on from that in a sense. And with Wayne Barnes, he's probably been one of, if not the best referees in the world over this past World Cup cycle. And when he was appointed to this final, at least in this newsroom and the people I was speaking to, there was a fairly wide acceptance that it was a good appointment, that he was the right man to take the role. Did he have his best game? Some people will debate that. I think perhaps it was more the TMO's influence on the game than Wayne Barnes himself. But I would like to think that from all those years removed from 2007 when he made that famous non-decision that we'll be able to see that it, he wasn't the defining factor in this final. Beyond the refereeing decisions, though, the All Blacks have had some discipline issues in this tournament and even in the lead-up to this tournament. So if we're looking at this tournament alone, a yellow card in the opening game, a red card in the next game, two yellows in the quarter final, and then a red in the final. So... You can only put so much blame on the referees here. What's going on with the discipline of this team? Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism to say that a large amount of the onus has to go back on the players and the technique they're training. It's difficult. This is a fast-paced game played by huge, powerful, explosive men and women. Things happen very quickly that you can't account for. But when you list off those kinds of incidents, and some of them aren't necessarily foul play, some of them are just other things related to the game, it's going to be a massive factor in a World Cup and it's something that you have to really focus on is limiting the amount of time that you're going to lose players off the field if you want to win a World Cup, especially when you're playing the likes of opposition like South Africa. It also stands as testament to the fact that the All Blacks are that good that they're often playing with 14 men and still getting quite far in these tournaments. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Like, it is something that we even saw in the semi-final. They finished the game with 14 men, didn't we? So, although now... Of course, I'm sure the All Blacks, Sam Kane, they would take any of those results back to not have the cards today and to have come out on the right side of the result. What do you think gave the Springboks the edge over the All Blacks? I mean, are you surprised at all that the All Blacks were able to come back against their greatest rivals, even though they were down to 14? I wouldn't say I was surprised. I think you have to remember also, as I said off the top, that South Africa had two yellow cards of their own. Mm -hmm. So that negated some of the advantage. South Africa got points on the board early. So they got themselves ahead. They got momentum in the game, right? And then Sam Kane gets sent off and the momentum's even further with the Springboks. And then in the second half, really, what got them over the line in the end was their defence because the All Blacks had a lot of the ball in good territory and missed some opportunities to capitalise. And I think you'd say the South African tackling numbers would be up higher. So they held on very valiantly in defence and that's in the end after that start where they got a few points on the board is probably what won them the game. If you're enjoying this episode of The Front Page, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And for a plethora of sports coverage, check out the ACC and Newstalk ZB podcast networks on iHeartRadio.
for over a year now, it has seemed like the whole country was against All Blacks coach Ian Foster after a string of losses. Now that he has managed to defy the odds and make it all the way to the final, is this a redemption story for him? And will we wrong as a nation to maybe be calling for his axing for so long? I think redemption's probably a strong word. I believe it's proof that Ian Foster is more than capable of being in that role and leading the team to success. You know, sometimes, I guess, not just in rugby and in sport, but in society these days, we tend to have quite knee-jerk, black-and-white reactions to things. And we had that series loss to Ireland last year, and all of a sudden, he needed to go. And then there was a couple of other results. Sometimes, at this level, people need time to work into a role. You need to give them a bit of rope, let them learn some lessons and, and come back. And I think that's what we're seeing with Ian Foster, right? He went through a heck of a lot in his tenure leading into the World Cup, and then he produced a team that got it all the way to the final, and if not for perhaps a you know, a red card would have won the World Cup. So I think it shows he was capable in that job. You also have to remember he's someone who had huge respect with the players. The players essentially were the defining factor in saving his job last year, coming together to say, we want him to still be the coach of this team. So I think that shows that he could have carried on. He has the respect of the players and he's someone who's led the team to a within an inch of a World Cup title. To say that that's not someone who could have carried on in this job, I think would be unfair. This does make incoming coach Scott Robertson's job a little bit harder. He was meant to come in and save the team, but this is hardly a team that needs saving now, given that it's made it all the way to the final. So how much pressure is on him as he comes into that role? This is a very interesting dynamic here, right? Because Scott Robertson is someone who, as you've mentioned, had immense public support to take over this job. And a lot of people were expecting the All Blacks to not reach the heights that they have at this World Cup. But now Scott Robertson takes over a team that came very close to winning a World Cup title, uh, takes over a team with, while there's some senior players leaving, a lot of players who really enjoyed and liked, clearly liked having Ian Foster as their coach. So while they haven't been ultimately successful, this team, I think they've exceeded their expectations. So he's taking over a team that has done that. So to come in with that factor and with the factor of the public support behind Scott Robertson, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. And, of course, no one in this country or no All Black fan is going to wish Scott Robertson ill. They hope he's successful in that role. But if it doesn't quite pan out, how much rope do the public give Scott Robertson? Ian Foster didn't get a lot. We saw that last year. So I think interesting is the word to see how that plays out and what Scott Robertson can do now that this team has made it all the way to a World Cup final. Who were some of the standout players from the All Blacks during this tournament? Well, if you look at today's final, one name that jumps out to me is, is Mark Talia. Of course, he had his moments off the field, a moment off the field during the World Cup, but I think on the field today. And it's been a, a quite a rapid rise for Mark Talia into that starting role and, and really, you know, one of the best players on the park in a World Cup final. Will Jordan didn't have his best game today, although not a big game for wingers, but I think eight tries in the tournament has now has one try per test or something like that and has been very good. And and outside of that, the guys doing the grunt work, Artie Savia again today, immense and probably you'd say the best all-black forward of the tournament. I thought Scott Barrett also had a brilliant tournament. Brody Vitalik, Sam Whitelock also contributing. And then Geordie Barrett, I think you have to look at him as well, coming in, really solidified himself as that number 12 and a player who is still so young and has a very bright future ahead of him at test level. We do have a lot of veterans retiring after this tournament. What does the future look like for this team? Is there a strong talent pool for Robertson to work with? And more importantly, are there enough young players coming through, given the challenges that we've had with rugby participation in this country? Yeah, well, we spoke about Scott Robertson and what it's going to be like for him taking over this team and the success they've had. But 
No Aaron Smith, Brody Retallix, Sam Whitelock gone, Dane Coles retiring, Nepo Lalala, Richie Mwanga, Shannon Frizzell, Lester Whanganuku. Now, these are some of the names of people who are not going to be around. The latter three going away overseas and may come back. We don't know, but it is going to be a new look team. But I think at the end of the day, there's enough talent here for this team to be successful. Now, whether that's straight away or whether you, you're talking towards the 2027 World Cup, because it is going to be a younger team, a, a less experienced team, because you're naturally losing some of those senior players. I think there's always going to be in this country. Rugby is just such a big part. Yes, participation isn't what it was, and I don't think we're quite seeing that yet. It's maybe a bit further down the track if it continues. I mean, New Zealand rugby obviously hope they can turn that around, but I think for the next World Cup cycle at least, there's more than enough talent within this country that if Scott Robertson can transfer that that ability shown at Super Rugby level to test level, that this is a team that could be a contender at the next World Cup. Just looking a little bit more broadly at the game, since 2007, the Rugby World Cup has been held by either the All Blacks or the Springboks. What does that say about this tournament, or the state of rugby, that these two teams have been so dominant in the most prestigious tournament in rugby? It says we get a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, out of the Northern Hemisphere. (laughs) Disappointment, perhaps, let's put it that way. Um, Yeah, I think this has probably been the most competitive in terms of Southern Hemisphere versus Northern Hemisphere, or how competitive those Northern Hemisphere sides have been. Outside of that, rugby is still very much a work in progress in terms of wider competitiveness across the teams. You know, we still see some big results and wide margins. You know, the All Blacks put 80, 90 points on Italy. So are things changing there? I'm not sure. South Africa and New Zealand are such dominant teams in this game and also so experienced at this level. Were they the best two teams in the world right now? It's hard to say, right? But we saw what they could do when it mattered in a World Cup knockout game and that was the difference really between themselves and the Northern Hemisphere teams. Last week World Rugby approved a new global men's competition combining teams from the Northern and Southern Hemisphere for the first time. There'll be more games between the top nations, that's that's the bottom line. For tier two nations though, I think it pretty much rules out any opportunity of those mm. teams playing the likes of the All Blacks outside of a World Cup, which for teams like or countries like Samoa or Tonga is very disappointing. Um, That link there may well be severed in the coming years. What do we know about this tournament and what do you make of some calling it the death of rugby? (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting backdrop to the end of a Rugby World Cup, isn't it, where the game's going. So you're looking at a 12-team top division, and essentially what this is is combining the rugby championship, which the All Blacks and Springboks play in, along with the Wallabies and the Pumas, and combining that with the Six Nations, plus a couple of other teams, looks like probably Japan and Fiji. And that will be played every two years, and it won't change a lot in the sense that we already have the July international window every year, and we have the end-of-year window, which the All Blacks go away to the Northern Hemisphere. The games are going to be played in those same windows, It's just that those games now have meaning, quote-unquote, to a wider competition, right? There have been some criticisms around what it means for teams below that, the the second tier, and that while they're going to get their own competition, it's less opportunity for them to play those top teams. And if those second tier teams are going to improve, they need to be playing the top teams more. So World Rugby have made some statements around that, that that won't be the case. So I don't think people, especially looks at the likes of the Pacific Nations here, there's been some quite strong statements made with not too much trust around if that will go ahead. So I guess the proof will be in the pudding. It's going ahead, but whether it works or not, let's wait and see. 
Clay, now that the match is over, how would you rate this World Cup? It probably peaked at the quarterfinal stage, which is unfortunate, isn't it? A close final, but perhaps not the most compelling rugby. Lots of stop starts and cards. But those quarterfinals we got between the All Blacks and Ireland, France and South Africa were epic games and really, really good rugby. So that's where it probably peaked. Overall, I mean, we did have some great results. The likes of Portugal getting up, Fiji and, and their rise and knocking over the Wallabies. So it did have some great moments. And I think probably exceeded my expectations, to be fair. Is it football in terms of a competitiveness scale? Not yet and, and probably will never be. But definitely had its moments. And it looks like in France, you know, France is, while a football nation, is a mad rugby nation. It's been very well supported. And by all accounts from people I speak to that have been over there, has been a great atmosphere to be a part of the whole tournament. So I would say exceeded expectations. Thanks for joining us, Claire. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and edited by Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Then tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.